At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Let's talk for a moment about the things that you could be doing in the time it takes you to go to the post office. You could be crawling around on all fours, uh, sniffing around your apartment to see where your cat Bowie might have urinated because he might have a urinary tract infection. You could be uh, testing out the new hot wax candles you got from the sex shop to see, you know, are these things going to leave second-degree burns on my nipples or what? You could be reaching out to everyone you know to see who out there might actually have access to hallucinogens. And that's just if you're me this morning. And it's why I really want you to try Stamps.com today. Listen, we have a special promo code, R-I-S-K. For this, you get a no-risk trial. You get $110 of a bonus offer that includes a digital scale, which I adore. It's so silver and squarish. Plus... $55 of free postage. So go to stamps.com. Don't wait. Do this before you do anything else. Go click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in R-I-S-K. That's stamps.com. And the promo code is RISK. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the bomb, not the, just bomb, just Bombay Royale. Behind me now, and we're calling today's episode... Square pay, square pay, square, square I'd like it if they'd like us, but I don't think they like us. Remember that? 
member. It's uh, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker sitcom 1982 Square Pegs. Not very good. Not very good. But this episode of Risk is a masterwork. We've got four stories of people who, you know, were not quite fitting into their circumstances. And we're going to start at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a new cast member of the new version of the show In Living Color, sketch comedy show that's soon to be on Fox. This is Cooper Barnes with a story we call Mission Impersonable. I grew up in suburban Detroit, and in the summer of the year 2000, um, I, was, uh, I was a college student, and I was studying to be an actor, and that's when I decided that's what I want to do with my life. I'm going for this thing. That's my passion. And I was pretty good at it, but I had this one hang-up, and that was that every once in a while, people would come up to me on the street, and they would tell me that they thought I looked like Tom Cruise. And... It used to, like, really bother me because it used to happen a lot. And as much as you would think that would be a compliment, um, I start to develop a bit of a complex about it because, as stupid as it sounds, I was legitimately concerned that my face was going to continue to grow and I was going to end up, like, with the same face as his, (laughs) and that was going to ruin my acting career. And Hollywood was going to be like, we already got one of those, send them back. (laughs) And... And so every time somebody would pay me this compliment, like I would get in my head about it and it would just kind of became this uh, chip on my shoulder. And what I didn't realize at the time that I realized later was that in suburban Detroit, people just say that to each other. They say things like that to each other, you know? <laughs> like everybody does. They tell each other that they look like celebrities. Um, and I guess it's just kind of their way of getting through the day. <laughs> because it's suburban Detroit. Um, and the weather's either like fucking freezing arctic cold or it's ungodly sticky and humid and there's just very few days out of the year where you, you know, want to (laughs) live and and so um, they would pay each other these little untruths, let's call them uh, just as a way of building up their, uh, you know, their morale so they don't put a fucking gun in their mouths (laughs) and so, you know, they would tell me I looked like him and, you know, they meant well but it would, you know, it would just add to this neuroses that I had so, the summer 2000, the big movie in the movie theaters was Mission Impossible 2. And I don't know if you guys remember that one, but that was the one that John Woo directed, where there's like doves for no reason, and Tom Cruise has long hair, and he's got sunglasses, and the, the black leather trench coat, and he's just like riding a motorcycle in slow motion the whole time. It's more like a, it's more like a movie version of Renegade with Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> like, it wasn't very good. It's got nothing to do with Mission Impossible, but, but everyone loved it, and it was the number one movie in America. Yeah. And uh, like I said, at the time, I was a college student, and I was broken than a joke. And the very little income I was making was made doing uh, murder mysteries for 30 bucks a pop in this little town called Bloomfield Hills, which is a very rich part of Michigan. And I I was basically doing dinner theater for old rich Jews, uh, mainly uh, because self-respect wasn't high on my list of priorities. And while I was there, I met this girl, Tammy. And uh, Tammy was a few years older than me. And she was a little crazy, but she was nice to me. And she had this little business going on the side where she would hire lookalikes 
for these celebrity golf events. And I said, I said, what's that? And she goes, oh, it's great. These millionaires, they pay me a bunch of money to organize these events. They play 18 holes of golf. And on every hole, there's a different celebrity impersonator just hanging out. And these guys, like, they get loaded and they play through and they take their picture with Jack Nicholson or Madonna or whatever and they fucking love it. And they pay me a bunch of money to put it together. And she was always trying to cut me in on the action. Like, hey, you want to do a Tom Cruise thing? And I was like, no, thank you. And one day I was kind of hard up for cash. And I was having a rough time. I almost ran out of gas on the way to the theater and it was bad. And she pulled me aside and she goes, um, listen, Mission Impossible 2 is the number one movie in America right now. I really want to put together like a Mission Impossible themed golf event with you. You want to do it? And I was like, Tammy, I really don't want to do that. And she's like, listen, it's going to be an hour of work, okay? It's going to be you. We're going to get a guy that looks like Ving Rhames. We'll have the love interest, the, you know, the bad guy. The people are going to have to do like a different Mission Impossible activity at every hole. It's going to be very special. It's going to be really quick. And I'm, here's the best part. I'm going to pay you 100 bucks. And I was like... I was like, a hundred bucks? Like, I need, like... So I was thinking about it. I was like, God damn it. Like, I could really use that money. So I was thinking all the things I could do with it. And I said, all right, fuck it. Like, for an hour, hundred, I'll do it. Okay, what do I got to do? And she goes, okay, all you have to do is get your own costume. So I went home that night. I got the black t-shirt, the sunglasses. My hair was really long at the time, so it worked out. I had some, I got some combat boots, some uh, fake guns. I borrowed my mom's black leather trench coat. (laughs) And, and, I, and I was all set. So I show up at the, at the country club on the day, and Tammy meets me at the front, and she couldn't be happier. She's like, oh, my God, you look perfect. Let's get you out there. I'm going to put you on the ninth hole. They're about to start coming through, so let's go. I said, cool. Uh, where's everybody else going to be? And she said, oh, about that. A couple of things. We end up having to scrap the whole Mission Impossible thing. We're not doing that anymore. But they are going to love you. Let's get you out there. I said, wait a minute, Tammy, you're not doing the Mission Impossible thing anymore? Like, well, who are the other actors going to be? She goes, there are no other actors, honey. They all bailed, but you saved my ass. Thanks for being here. I said, wait, so I'm going to be out there by myself? Like, isn't that kind of random? Like, like, I said, Tammy, out of context, are they even going to know who the hell I'm supposed to be? And she goes, honey, of course they're going to know. You look exactly like him. I was like, not really, Tammy. Like, I don't look at all like him. Like, what are you talking about? I said, this is not what we agreed to, and I've never done this before. She goes, honey, I do this all the time, okay? And trust me, they get one look at you. They're going to love you. Like, you're going to have so much fun, you'll be done in an hour. And she starts, like, instilling in me this false sense of confidence. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm being a big baby. This is going to be over in an hour. I'm making a big deal of this. I'm going to make 100 bucks. Let's just, let's just make this work. So she leaves me out there with this little golf cart. And she goes, oh. You, you can have this be like your secret spy vehicle. Like, like, use that when you're interacting with people. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? And she goes, just roll with it. You're going to be great. So she leaves me out there. And it's this giant, lush golf course, okay? There's tr- big trees around me. I'm in, the, I'm in the far corner of the thing. I'm on the ninth hole. There's a couple of outhouses off to the side of me. And it's just me by myself with this black leather trench coat with these fake guns by myself. And I'm standing there, and uh, the first people come up to me, these two old people, they got to be pushing 80. These people are ancient. And I figure, no time like the present. So I hop down, I start army crawling towards them, and I'm like, and I'm like, dun, 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 dun. And I hop up, and I'm like, ah, Because <laughs> that was like the extent of my Tom Cruise impression, just like laughing maniacally at people. And, uh, 
And they kind of smile and they laugh, and, but I can't tell if it's like nervous laughter or if they genuinely know who I'm supposed to be. So it wasn't the reaction I wanted, so I go, okay, let me, let's, let's try the golf cart idea. That was a good idea. So the next people come up, also super old, two scoops of raisins, these people. So they're walking up, and, and I get in the golf cart, and I realize it's going these pedals. And as soon as you take your foot off the pedal, things stops moving. So I was literally able to drive towards him like really fast and at the last minute jump from the moving golf cart, barrel roll towards him and hop up and be like, show me the money or something stupid, you know? Also, like no recognition whatsoever. Like this, they're, this boy, they're just looking at me like, who the fuck's the guy in the lady's trench coat? Um, so at this point, I'm just grasping at straws. Like so far, no one's asked to take their picture with me. No one's even said, hey, it's Tom Cruise. Like nothing. So I'm like, I gotta step up my game, right? So I look around and what do I see? But I see these like little spherical colored balls on the green. And I don't play golf, but I found out later that these are T markers. And essentially they're these little ceramic balls and they're there to designate the boundaries of the teeing ground. And I pick them up, they're about the size of a hand grenade. So I just toss them at people, right? <laughs> and uh, people are like trying to putt and I hide behind a tree and, I, and they would fall by them. Then I'd hop up and be like, boom, when they hit the ground, right? And uh, they didn't care for that. Um, uh, did it a couple times. At this point, they're just kind of staring at me. So Tammy comes back. She checks in on me. She goes, how's it going? And I said, Tammy, I could be wrong, but I don't think these old Jews have seen Mission Impossible 2. She goes, honey, it's the number one movie in America. They've seen it. I said, okay, and she goes, couple of things. Um, management's a little concerned that we're not making the money on this private party, so they're just gonna let the mainstream public play through on this course. So um, don't interact with them, just interact with our people. I go, how am I gonna know who's our people? Like, I don't know these people, they look like Mr. Howell to me. And, and she said, okay, good point. You know what, just do it for everybody. Like, they're just gonna love it. How could they not love it? You're awesome, so just go. So she leaves me there again. This is the point where it takes a turn. <laughs> I made a choice in that moment. Um, it wasn't a good choice, but in my defense, I was young and stupid, and you know, like I said, it was suburban Detroit, and it was really fucking hot because it was like the middle of August, and perhaps the heat had gotten to my brain. Um, I decided that it would be a funny idea to jump up on top of the outhouses wait for people to come out of the outhouses, whip out my two guns, and point them at them and go, freeze! <laughs> the first guy did that to damn near shit his pants. And in my mind, it happened this fast. No sooner did that happen that I see this golf cart just barreling towards me at a speed that shouldn't be possible on a golf cart. And before it's come to a full stop, the dude, uh, the country club employee that's driving it has hopped out, and he just starts booking towards me full tilt. And he runs up to me all out of breath, and he's like, dude, you need to get out of here now. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, some lady out here saw you. She freaked. She ran all the way back to the clubhouse. The news media is here. Oh and I said, oh, oh, my God. They think I'm the real Tom Cruise. And he goes, no, they think you're one of those fucking Columbine kids. <laughs> They said there's a maniac on the golf course with two guns in a trench coat screaming at people. They called the cops. The cops called the Metro Detroit SWAT team. They showed up, and about two minutes ago, they had a sniper on you. And I go, I just dropped my guns and threw my arms up in the air. Like, 
surrendering to no one. It's because it's just me and the guy in all these trees. But I don't know where the sniper is. Is he behind the outhouse? Is he in the tree? Like, I don't know where he is. And he goes, calm down. We called it off. We told him it was just a big misunderstanding. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all good, but you've got to go, man, because you're scaring the shit out of people. And in that moment, I, I lowered my arm slowly. I took it all in, realizing that the danger is past. And this is how stupid I am. I said to the guy, I go, mm, do I still get paid? Because I could really use that hundred bucks. And he goes, dude, we'll double it. Just please get the hell out of here. And so it worked out pretty good in the end, you know? I got, uh, I got 200 bucks. I didn't get shot in the face. And uh, most importantly, I lost that little Tom Cruise chip that I had on my shoulder. Because I realized I don't look at all like him. In fact, when push comes to shove, people just think I look like a domestic terrorist. So, so as a uh, famous golfer once said, I got that going for me, which is nice. Thanks a lot. Don't dress your cat in an apron. Don't put your horse in a nightgown. Don't dress your snake in a moo-moo. Don't dress your whale in galoshes. A person should wear what he wants to, and not just what other folks say. A person should do what he likes to. A person's a person that way. When I was 20 years old, the most embarrassing thing in the world to me was the fact that I was still a virgin. And I don't know why, because if I was 20, then this was a time when I was wearing a clip-on nose ring and glitter as blush. So I had other things to be embarrassed about. But for whatever reason, this is what I focused on, being a virgin. And when I say I was a virgin, I don't just mean that I'd never had anyone else's genitalia in, on, or near me, but I mean nothing at all. I had never been to any bases. I had never been on a date. The only time that my mouth had ever been on someone else's mouth was in rehearsals and then performance of a high school production of Oliver. So the cabin was sealed. And this was the most embarrassing thing in the world. But worse than that is that I felt like everybody knew. So the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I was working at a Pizzeria Uno in Philadelphia, and I had just gotten to the point where I was comfortable enough with the menu and where everything was that you get bored, and so it's time to just start dicking around. And I was closest friends with this other server, Matt, so Matt and I just dicked around all the time, and we were always yip-yapping and making fun of other people. And so one night, we were up in the empty dining room that they would only open on weekends when it got busy, and we were rolling silverware, and we were gossiping, and finally, you know, Matt blurts out all of a sudden, oh my god, I forgot to tell you, so apparently, JT likes you. JT was one of the line cooks in the kitchen. And at 23, he was big and broad-shouldered with the shaved head and the barbed wire bicep tattoo and the most symmetrical face I had ever seen. And he was quiet, but I could tell that there was something that was so Stella about him, you know, which was just so hot to me. And I had been spending the last month or so just hanging around him, loitering around his station in the kitchen, even going so far as to listen to the bands that I would see him wear on his t-shirts. Because I thought that if I listened to the music that he liked, even when he wasn't around, 
I was getting to be close to him. Like I could make him just appear whenever I put on Metallica and it would make my thoughts of him that much more vivid and present and right there. You know, so I listened to mostly the Black Album because that's the one I knew a lot. And I would latch on to Enter Sandman because Enter Sandman had that driving, pounding intro that just kept building and building and sounded like it was headed somewhere big. I just didn't know where. That sounded like sex to me, and so that's what I wanted to listen to when I thought about JT. And so now, when I heard Matt say, well, JT likes you, with the authority of someone who heard it directly from the source, my stomach flip-flopped, and a a tingling shot through my body and fired out my extremities, and my throat did that kind of slow burn when you hear something like that. But before I could enjoy any of these feelings or this moment, Matt followed that up with, but you know about JT, right? And I said, oh, that he barely finished high school? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's fine, I guess. And that's like, no, well, yeah, I guess, but um, the other thing. And I said, what other thing? And he said, he's a skinhead. Now, I'm sure that I am not the only person in the history of the universe to ever find out that someone that I thought I knew was a skinhead. So I am also sure I am not the only person who followed that up with just because his head's shaved. And Matt said, no, the other thing. The bad thing. And you know he's been in jail, too, right? I was like, oh my god, no! Why do you know this? And he said, because I smoke with him outside. And he tells me a lot. He goes, I don't know if he thinks that maybe I'm like him, or that I have the potential to be like him, but he has got a lot of opinions about black people and gays and Jews, and so he just tells me. People who smoke outside together tell each other stuff. That's how I know he likes you. Well... Now what? Like, I knew I should just stop liking JT right then and there. I couldn't like a proud and practicing racist. What would that say about me? But on the other hand, on the other very unfortunate hand, I hadn't seen much evidence up until that point that I could do any better. Like, I'm rocketing toward adulthood without ever having been in any way intimate with anyone ever, and now I have it on good authority that someone out there is interested in me, maybe even enough to do naked stuff. So, I really didn't know what I was going to do until... Three nights later, after a party under an air conditioning unit on the corner of 17th and Bainbridge in Philadelphia, where I had my first real kiss with a complete, total, out-and-out neo-Nazi skinhead. The first kiss, by the way, I should mention, that was simultaneously coupled with my first uh, dry fingering, which is just what I'm choosing to call it when someone rubs their hand over your pants, but still on your Mexico. And so and we did that, and when we made out for hours that night, and then the next night, and then the next night, and then the next night, until it was official. We were dating. I was in a relationship and being intimate with not just a skinhead, but a violent one, which is not something that I would have thought a girl from a small town with parents who loved her and the world's most obsessive Streisand collection would have done, but here she was doing it. And the thing is, though, that for all he would show me, like, all the bruises on his body that he would get starting fistfights in the parking lot at Megadeth shows, and for all that I was hearing Matt say about his opinions on anybody who wasn't white and straight, 
I never would have known that he was like that if I just went on what he was like with me when we were alone during any number of makeout slash dry hump sessions at that time because he was so sensitive and attentive and so much so that one night during dry humping after he very politely asked if we could not do this while the Golden Girls played in the background, uh, he just kind of stopped again and, and looked at me and, and very gently asked, are you a virgin? And I blurted out, no! And then I thought, oh, God, is he already... Uh, all right, and so I just started backpedaling and I didn't really know what to say. And I, I said, well, yeah, I, I guess um, technically I've never had uh, actual sex, uh, but back in high school... Uh, this is really very embarrassing, but um, when I was in high school, I was actually known as like the main blowjob person. Uh, it's just blowjobs. That's just what I did um, all the time. Like so many, <laughs> too many to count. Am I right? I couldn't even tell him how really green I was, even though he already could clearly tell. And even if he could already tell, all he ever did was just kind of smile and giggle at that, because I guess to him, that story was adorable. But there was something about that gesture, just that smile and that giggle that was so sweet and so caring, that it almost made me feel safe. And maybe even safe enough to go back and tell him that I was lying about what I just said, and I, and I don't know why I said it, and that he was already my first in more ways than one. No, I blew him right there, trying to remember what I'd only read about how to give the right kind of blowjob. Open my throat, spitty, no teeth, hum. And this is how it was for several months. I'd only ever want to be seen with him at work or in my apartment. Then we'd make out. It would get heavy. He'd want to have actual tab A slot B sex. And I would just head him off at the pass with a Hummer. Because I couldn't shake the thought that if I had sex with him, then that meant that my first was officially a skinhead. And that would just be my story for the rest of my life. And I didn't want that. But... The longer that I stayed with him, the stronger that I knew that possibility was looking, and I just couldn't put up the BJ shield forever, but I still couldn't muster the courage to break up with him. And so instead, I, I took the third road and just tried to prove that he wasn't really a neo-Nazi, he was just being a big silly. So JT, I said to him one lazy afternoon when we were just laying in bed and I was kind of unconsciously stroking his back, I said, JT... You know I'm not completely white, don't you? And he kind of stiffens and just rolls over and says, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean that I'm 100% second generation Italian, so I guess technically that means I'm Mediterranean, and plus I'm southern Italian, actually, so there's a good chance that if you go, like, way, 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 way back, my ancestors are from northern Africa. And he's not saying anything. He's just staring at me. And I think for just a split second that he's going to say, okay, well, why are you telling me this? You know, that's the way that he was staring at me. But instead, his eyes got icy. And he said, don't say that to me. You know I don't like that. You are white. End of discussion. So, after... 
another month of me still not breaking up with him, but still lobbing silly tests like, well, JT, tonight when the busboy told that joke about the woman at the table and super pussy, you laughed. And so if you, he's black. So if you think black people are funny, then you can't hate them, right? So after a month of lobbing tests like that at him, he fired back at me with a test of his own. So he sits me down and he says, hey, and he's, he's nearly panting with excitement that, you know, he's, he, has the most brilliant idea. And he said, you know what I think we should do? I think that we, you and me, I think we should sell all of our stuff and buy a motorcycle and some weed, like an easy rider or whatever. And we should just move to Missoula, Montana. And I said, why Missoula, Montana? And he said, cause I've been there and it's pretty and it's far, which were kind of like his only reasons. And then he went on and said, well, I mean, but you couldn't, like, do, like, your artsy thing out there. I mean, closest thing would be, like, Vegas, I guess. He was totally earnestly serious about not only Vegas being a place where artists go to flourish, but that Vegas is within commuting distance of Missoula, Montana. He really thought that. And so, anyway, he continued and he said, uh, well, so, you know... I'll give you like a week to decide because, you know, I got to do some stuff on my end, too. But I think you should know that I think that any girl that really loved her boyfriend would do it. And so time ran out, of course, on that ultimatum a week later. And uh, I went in to the restaurant on a day that I was off, but he was working. And then the two of us went upstairs to that empty dining room. I'm terrified because I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. And I'm thrilled when I see that he's going to speak first until he says, I think we should probably break up. And because I had never dated anyone before, I had also never been broken up with before. And so instinct kicks in to try to save yourself and, and preserve whatever this is, this relationship, quote unquote. And so I try to say, like, oh, you know, no, but, but maybe I don't want to move to Montana, but well, maybe we just should move to a more rural part of Pennsylvania. That were, I mean, they have cows. I, you know, I think we can figure it out. But before I had a chance to get all of that, you know, pitching into him, he continued again and he said... I just, I'm not the guy for you. You know, like, you'll probably graduate school and move to New York and date somebody artsy like you. And you'll probably do that because that's what you should do. And I don't think I can stand in the way of that or stop that. And that was it. With that, he just stood up. And he made like maybe he was going to bend down and hug me, but then thought better of it and went back down to the kitchen. And just like that, it was over. And to this day, still, whenever I go to Philly, I really do wonder if I would actually still be with that guy if he had not liked me enough for the both of us. He was only around for, you know, a couple of months, which is not a very long time if you look at the big picture. And we never really did have tab A, slot B, sex, because remember, I didn't want to go through life with that mark on me, except that mark is on me. My first was a neo-Nazi skinhead, ignorant and angry with the rest of the world, but still gentle and selfless with me never forcing me to do anything I didn't want to do and always assuring me that if we ever did actually have sex, if I ever felt ready for that, 
that it would be okay, he would tell me, because he was clean. Because, you know, they test for syphilis in jail. This is Risk. This is Fruit Bats behind me now with a song called You're Too Weird. And before that, we had a little something, something or other by Jeff Barr called, now let me read this. It's Eek Verd Alice Verhockbraten Zutun, which I think means um, I would do anything for meatloaf. And then before that, the lovely Ms. Dana Rossi. She is the host of one of the most popular storytelling shows in New York City, the Soundtrack Series. And we call that one Nazi Right Guy for Me. Just shameless punning going on on this. Oh, you know what? Someone told me that if you ask Siri on the iPhone, if you say, hey, Siri, tell me a Holocaust joke. She'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. But if you ask her like 10 more times, she'll finally respond, I told you, that is inappropriate. And frankly, I wish you'd stop asking. And I assume she says it in a gay Kevin Allison-y way like that. So I don't have Siri. Test it out. Let me know. All right, guys. You know how I'm always trying to get you guys more in on the conversation? For, for one thing iTunes. I say it all the time. Leave your comments on iTunes. Leave your comments on iTunes. Leave your comments on iTunes. Because the more comments we get on iTunes, the more likely we'll be noticed by anyone. But you know, you can also converse directly with me at the forums at MaximumFun.org. Every time we put up a new episode, we announce it there on the MaximumFun.org forums and then talk about the stories with fans. And finally, there's Twitter and Facebook. We're at Risk Show in both places. And on Facebook, we've taken to asking people what, you know, their own stories are. Super short little versions of stories. So this time out, we asked, hey, anyone out there have, you know, square pegs kind of stories? And this guy, Matthew S., wrote back, For a fifth grade choral performance at a home for the elderly, we were told to dress up. 
I took this to mean that I should wear a rainbow women's blazer, parachute pants, novelty sunglasses, and a top hat I'd glued about a dozen googly eyes to. In a photo taken that day that has set the tone for my life, I am proudly hamming it up in my dress clothes, surrounded by other kids in dark suits. I love it, Matthew S., and I dearly love Mr. Larry Rosen. Larry is such an accomplished director and actor and teacher. He works at The Moth right now. And we call this one, the story he's about to share, The Eye in Team. At the age of 36, while living in Los Angeles, I was invited to join a men's a cappella singing group. It was the first time I'd ever been invited to join a men's anything. I'd never been one of the guys. I had no brothers, very few male cousins. My friends were all these misfit loner types, and I sucked at team sports. I was good at standing out often in some really good ways. I was often class president. I was a high scholastic achiever. I was often the lead in the school play. I had never had that experience of being part of an ensemble and just surrendering to that group energy. And this is something I had pined for. And so the invitation to join this group was really an answer to a prayer. I mean, it was guys and it was music. I mean, we would literally be harmonizing. Together, and these guys knew their harmony. I mean, the five who had started the group had all gone to Yale together. And so they took their music very seriously, which was a little bit intimidating. Also, the fact that they had decided to name this particular singing group the Upscales. And I thought, okay, I'm surrendering to a better class of ensemble. And I went for it. And I showed up at the first rehearsal early. And I listened intently, and I followed instructions, and I came home with a stack of music and practiced a lot at home, and I diligently showed up at every rehearsal, and we'd work and work and work. We'd take these sections of the music and practice them again and again and again. And the sounds that came out of these 12 guys were amazing. And I found out after a very short time that this was really tough for me. I had a really hard time fitting in. It was tough for me musically. First of all, volume. You had to sing loud enough to be heard, but not so loud that you'd be heard above everyone else. And so I found the only way I could do this was to sing such that I couldn't hear myself. And this used to freak me out. I used to feel literally like I was disappearing. And I would keep touching my chest and my neck to make sure I was still there. And also that I was still vibrating. I also had developed a vibrato. 
I'd grown up listening to the pop jazz singers that my parents used to listen to, the famous ones. And I had a particular fondness for Tony Bennett. And for years, I had practiced sort of getting his kind of shimmery vibrato. So after working on a lot of loud, bombastic kinds of songs, we started to work on some jazz ballads. And we were working on that, that old standard, How High the Moon. And I couldn't wait to inject my shimmery little vibrato. And I was quickly told, don't do that. It only works if we all sing in straight tones. So I had to pull back the vibrato. We were soon to begin to perform. And I found out that we were all going to be wearing uniforms. And the uniform was beige khaki pants and a blue Oxford shirt. I hated the way I looked in clothes like this. I never dressed this way. I thought I would cheat the outfit. So I got these khaki pants that were kind of big. They were bagging that kind of ballooned over the shoes. And I thought it looked kind of cool. And I was quickly told, no, no, no. Tighter, crisper, shorter. And we started to perform. And the gigs were amazing. I mean, for an amateur group, they were really quite extraordinary. We headlined at the LA Zoo. We sang at Knott's Berry Farm, and on one unbelievable evening, we sang the national anthem in an L.A. Dodgers game. And through all of this, what I wanted more than anything else was to stand out. Occasionally, we would do these comedy numbers, and I'd be given a little bit to do. So we did that pop hit called Istanbul. You may know this. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. And I would have this bit in the middle of the song where I would get to jump out in front of the line and I would sing, take me back to Constantinople. And immediately the two guys on either side of me would pull me back into the line and everyone would point to me and they would yell, saying, no, you can't go back to Constantinople. And this kind of became a metaphor for my whole experience with the upscales. Istanbul including socially, which was also tough. To me, these guys had one discernible emotion, mirth. They were the happiest fucking people you ever saw, laughing and joking and laughing and joking. And look, I like to laugh and joke at least as much as the next person, but we spent a lot of time together. You would have thought there would have been one serious conversation. These guys would throw themselves birthday parties and everyone would always go to everybody else's birthday party and the parties all looked exactly alike. Games. We'd play Trivial Pursuit. We'd play charades. We'd go on scavenger hunts. And dutifully, I would go to every party and I would trudge through every game. And I just kept thinking, can't we just talk? You see, my fantasy going into this was that because it was music that drew us together, that we would form these bonds of the heart that we would bear our souls. And I used to get a little overdramatic. I'd think, how about if we all just sit around and cry? Let's all have a good cry together. And this was not the kind of thing that ever happened. Once, I was talking to a few of the guys about high school, and they were recounting different antics they had been involved in and different crazy things that had happened. And I just casually let it drop that I had spent the great part of my high school years in a state of near-clinical depression, which I did kind of lightly and jokingly. But no one knew what to say. It kind of killed the conversation. I took a chance and I threw myself a birthday party. I had never done this before. And none of them was able to make it. I was not feeling sorry for myself. I have very dear friends. I was not alone. 
It's just that I felt like I was not clicking with these guys and it was driving me crazy. And I would grouse about this constantly to my very dear friend, Audrey, who herself was a loner. And one time after hearing me do this yet again, she looks at me and she says, is it really that important? And I said, yes. I said, you know, I've been wanting this ever since I was a kid. I really just want to taste this bond. And she said to me, maybe this is not the group for you. And she looks at me and she says, it seems to me, if anything, you're becoming more independent. And she was right, truly. I had recently moved into my own apartment for the first time without roommates. And I was loving living alone. And I was working out a lot, and I was discovering the strength of my own body, and I was loving that. And I started to teach and direct, and I found that I liked being a leader. And so after this conversation, I used to focus on this a great deal, what I called my inner leader. And I, at the same time, I found myself phasing myself out of the upscale social gatherings. And I thought about quitting the group entirely, but I made an even bigger move. I decided to move back to New York. I'd come to Los Angeles 10 years before from New York precisely because I couldn't hack it in New York. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was just kind of drifting. And New York is a horrible city to drift in. L.A. was so much easier. The climate was more friendly. The pace was easier. You could just sort of drive around in your car. The beach was right there. The mountains were right there. And I loved it. And now after 10 years with this new kind of renewed feeling of independence, I thought, no, I'm ready for this. So I told the upscales I was leaving, and the mood at my last rehearsal was mirthful. Congratulations, good luck, stay in touch. And then at the end of the rehearsal, they all got in their cars and they drove off. And I stood there thinking, okay. Now, I decided to take the train back to New York because I found something very romantic and sort of pioneer-like about taking the train. And I kept picturing myself being in this movie. You know, there's always that scene where you see the map and you kind of see the train making its way across the map. And I thought of myself not only as being in the train, I thought of myself as the train. It's like I'm chugging my way across the country. And so on moving day, I was driven to the train station by a very dear friend. We got there early. There was about a half hour to kill before leaving. And I stood there in the vestibule, and I just started watching the people. And I was conscious of the groups, that there were church groups and school groups and camp groups and families. And I was suddenly aware of how alone I felt. And it was this back and forth kind of feeling, these stabs of fear and a little bit of sadness, and then this exhilaration about this felt like this new journey that I was going on by myself. And then the craziest thing happens. Now, outside Union Station, there was this ongoing crafts fair where people would sell the arts and crafts from their respective countries. And you would sometimes hear the music of their various lands. And I suddenly start to hear the strains of a Czech drinking song called I Luchka Luchka, which happened to be one of the staples of the upscale's repertoire. And I thought, this is freaking perfect. And suddenly I saw this whole thing as a movie. It's like the movie had been my life in L.A., and it had been one man's journey toward independence. And I saw this as the closing shot. 
and I'm looking around and I'm seeing the credits are starting to roll and in front of me there's all these groups and in the back of me there's the upscales music and in the middle there's the hero looking determined and resolute kind of nodding slowly. The camera's pulling away slowly toward the long shot and the camera pulls away and pulls away and then the camera stopped and it starts moving in again toward the close-up because the music was getting louder. And I look in front of me, and I see a line of men walking toward me. And it was the upscales, who had come to the station to sing me off. And they stood on either side of me, and they put their arms around me, and we sang for these people in the train station. And it was time to board. They got on with me, and we sang for the train crew and the other arriving passengers. When it was time to go, they got off the train, and they stood outside. And I thought, I'm so close to these men and so different. And I thought, oh, fuck. I'm just going to be working this out for a long time. And this became the closing shot of my life in Los Angeles. The train starting to pull out of the station, the upscales outside waving and smiling, and me inside waving and sobbing. So, a year after I graduated high school, I moved to Israel to live on a kibbutz. I was told that a kibbutz is sort of this, like, socialist utopia where these Jewish intellectuals would gather and, like, start the, like, revolution through, like, the redemptive power of labor, and it was going to be this incredible thing, and I was going to dive right in. And I also was told that um, kibbutz girls were horny for Americans. So I went, and I learned two things very quickly. I learned right away that a kibbutz is less a socialist utopia and a little bit more like a less Jewish suburb in Long Island. Like, it's full of, like, greasy dudes that are getting drunk on light beer all the time and say stuff like, socialism, that's for pussies, bro. And, and um, it's kind of like Ron Konkuma with less synagogues. And, and the other thing that I learned right away is that Kibbutz girls were horny for American men. I was an 18-year-old American boy that looked like a 12-year-old Hasidic girl. They were not interested in me. So there was going to be no revolution. There was going to be no socialist hand jobs. There was going to be none of it. And all I could do was like throw myself into the idea that I could have redemptive labor. Like whatever that meant, I wanted it really badly. And my first job was in the dairy. Um, I was I would show up at six in the morning the first day, and uh, my boss, this British expat named Willie, hands me this knife and he says, your job for the next eight hours is to scrape the caked on, dried up cow shit off of every surface in the entire dairy, which was my job for eight hours a day, six days a week for the next three months. And it was not redemptive. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? The rest of these guys seem to be doing like really heavy duty work and it seems like they're really happy. And if I just keep my head down and work really hard, maybe I'll get to do the fun stuff. And then one day I show up at the three in the clock in the morning shift 
And Willie's there waiting for me. He's got this shit-eating grin on his face, and he says, I've got someone I'd like you to meet. And I go with him into the other room, and there waiting for me is this like tall, skinny guy with this like pencil mustache, and he's smoking a 100. He looks like a creepier John Waters. And, <laughs> and I say, hi, I'm Aaron. And he takes this like long pull on his cigarette, and he goes, I'm doo-doo. <laughs> I am the inseminator. Which is a terrible name for anyone, let alone an inseminator. But I'm going to be his assistant. Whatever Dudu needs me to do, I'm going to do for him. And it turns out what Dudu needs me to do is to, two things. He needs me to keep track of the list, which is a list of all the cow's numbers and the corresponding bull semen that they're going to be inseminated with. Dudu wears a holster with dozens of syringes that are two feet long. And... Each one contains a different bull's semen, and the right semen has to go into the right cow because you don't want cow fathers impregnating cow daughters. That's like hillbilly cow stuff. And the, but more importantly, you, they're trying to do this like selective breeding thing. They want the cows to have the right genetic material, and so you can't fuck this up. So that's the first thing I'm supposed to do. The second thing I'm supposed to do is hold the cow's tail up in the air. And you do that because it cuts off a nerve which prevents the cow from kicking. And you need to do that really well because if you don't, you're going to get kicked in the chest because what Dudu is about to do is horrifying. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen like nature shows or like jackass or like lots of you porn, but basically here's what happens. I hold up the tail. Dudu inserts his right arm into the cow's asshole up to his shoulder. From there... From there, he grabs the birth canal from the inside and pulls it straight. He then removes one of the syringes from his holster, puts it into the cow's vagina up to his elbow, depresses the plunger, thus completing the circle of life as God intended. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I basically almost passed out. The tenth time, I was on peyote. Like, the world was melting around me. All I could see was John Waters fist-fucking a cow like, over and over and over again. And we get to the second-to-last cow, and I read off the number, and I hold up the cow's tail, and in goes the right arm, and out comes the syringe, and in it goes up to the elbow into the cow's vagina, and that's when I realize I've made a mistake, and I say, wait, doo-doo, that's the wrong bull semen, which is something you never expect to scream in your life. And... Dudu pulls out the syringe and he looks at it and I'm right, it's the wrong one. But now we're in a quandary because he can't put the syringe back in his holster. It's been contaminated and that would ruin the syringe that's still good in his holster. He can't put it on the ground because the same thing, it would ruin the syringe that he's got in his hand. This is very, very high quality bull semen and Dudu has had to do terrible things to harvest this bull semen and he's not going to ruin it. And he can't give it to me because if he gives it to me, I have to let go of the cow's tail and then we're going to get kicked in the chest. And that's when I see Dudu put the syringe that is dripping with cow juice in the one place that he can put it, right into his mouth. And then he quickly takes out the other syringe and goes, boop, boom. And then he looks at me and he, he says, it is very sterile. And then he says, don't fucking tell anybody. And I go home that day and I take this like really long hot shower. And all I can think about is that if that's what it takes to have like a redemptive labor experience, if I have to French kiss a cow's vagina by proxy, I'm not sure I want what it takes. 
the next two days are kind of like in a haze. Like I sort of just like go through the motions, but I'm like contemplating going home early and maybe I should just go to Thailand and freak out on drugs. Like I'm not sure. <laughs> that Friday I show up to work and Willie's waiting for me. And this time he doesn't have a smile on his face. He's got this like terrible, like kind of anxious look and he says, I need your help right now. And he goes running off into the night and I go running after him. And I find him in this lit area and there's this cow who's pregnant and she's giving birth. Now, I I don't know if you've seen City Slickers and like Billy Crystal has this kind of like lovely moment. It's hard, it's a little bit gross, but like it's, you know, it's wonderful in the end. That's nothing what cow birth is like. It's terrifying. And this cow is kind of like mooing and there's this like two little paws and like a snout sticking out. And Willie attaches these these ropes to the cow's hoofs and then attaches the ropes to a, a car jack and starts like ratcheting this calf out of the cow. And it's not working and the cow's freaking out and Willie's freaking out and he says, push man push and I like throw my shoulder against the cow's ass and I start pushing and he's pulling and there's piss everywhere (laughs) and then Willie says we need to do an episiotomy and I say a what and he says an episiotomy and I say a what and he says an episiotomy the surgical widening of the cervix and he pulls out a bowie knife from his boot and he just goes to town and then all of a sudden there's just like and the cat falls to the ground and it's just covered in goop. And it's not breathing. And Willie says, we have to do CPR. And the last time I did CPR was on a dummy in fourth grade babysitting class. <laughs> but he says, blow, man. And that's when I find myself holding this calf's snout and blowing into its nostrils. And Willie starts doing compressions, and I'm blowing, and he's compressing and I'm blowing and then he just pushes me off and he just leans back and he punches the calf in the chest. And the calf kind of like shudders and goes (laughs) and then stands up and goes and feeds from his mother. And Willie and I kind of collapse on the hay just exhausted and I'm waiting for something to happen like I'm waiting for like my like curly moment, you know, like I'm waiting for something like, I want this, like the heavens open up, redemption, come, like what's happening and nothing is happening, all I feel is just exhausted and Willie lights a cigarette and he hands it to me and then he lights one for himself and we sit there smoking and he leans over and he goes hey, she was queefing like a cunt (laughs) which wasn't exactly like, you know my city slickers moment and then he says, you know, for a Yankee you're all right." And he gets up and he goes back to work. Um, I spent the rest of the 10 months working in the dairy. It was not very revolutionary. I can't say it was particularly redemptive. It was the hardest I've ever worked and it was the proudest I've ever been of anything I've ever done. And it's because of that that You're All Right for a Yankee is one of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to me. Thanks.
that brings us to the end, folks. This is Fort Union with a song called Kingdom behind me now. And we just heard one of the most beloved storytellers in this great city of New York, Mr. Aaron Wolf. That's W-O-L-F-E with a story we call In Labor. That's the kind of stuff that happens at a Risk Live show. And let me let you know about the next two On October 25th, 2012, we will be at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles with Mary Lynn Ricecub of 24 and Modern Family, Cindy Chupak of Sex in the City and also Modern Family, Chris Smith of Paranormal Activity and The Office and Harvard Sailing. There's too many people to mention and too many credits. It's an amazing lineup. October 25th at The Pit in New York City. We have Joe Matarese of Fixing Joe and Chelsea Lately. We have Risk beloved favorites Mr. David Crabb and Juliet Hope Wayne. Great shows. Always look for us at risk-show.com tour. In November, we are going to be at the First Person Arts Festival in Philly with Janine Garofalo. What date in November? Why, the 16th, of course. Just go to risk-show.com slash tour. Uh, Also, at the Story Studio, our school, I am teaching a Storytelling for Business workshop, a one-day deal on November 4th. Come on out, learn how to tell a story for your career purposes. And if you love Risk... The way to help us out, the way to show your support, is to go to MaximumFun.org and become a member. And while you're there, my friend, you will discover many, many more wonderful podcasts, many hours of the highest caliber entertainment. We shall return with another episode next week, as always. And now it is time that I tell you folks... Today's the day. Take a risk. And I felt very alone and very independent and enthusiastic and strong. That's bullshit.